Welcome to the Best Ever You Network, celebrating our third year on Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Thank you for helping us become a number one rated live show with over one million global listeners. Our team is on a mission to help you discover your authentic best self and bring it to the world. And now, here's our show. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for listening to the Best Ever You show here on Blog Talk Radio. I'm one of your hosts, Elizabeth Hamilton Garino, here in Maine. And on the West Coast, we have Dr. Walter Jacobson. How are you today, Dr. Walter Jacobson? Uh, doing great, Liz. Thanks. Everything's good. Yeah. Good, good, good. Um, it's all... Uh, I'm so excited about this guest. I'm sure he heard our intro music and was like, hmm, I think I could redo that. I think, should I call him William Clipman? We'll, uh, his bio says Will Clipman. I think that sounds kind of, um, his website also is Will Clipman. I'll direct everybody to that. It's W-I-L-L-C-L-I-P-M-A-N.com. We've got Will Clipman here with us. And uh, we'll go into that and in, go into bringing him on the show here in a minute. But um, you and I, we talk about our books a little bit at the top of every show. And um, I gave your book to somebody yesterday. I love your book, Forgive to Win. It was somebody who was um, just kind of angry at somebody else. And I said, I have just the book for you. <laughs> here you go. <laughs> and here's mine, too. Enjoy. But um, they they uh said they read part of your book last night and they emailed me this morning and said that is a really great book so you changed your oh. life there you go oh that's wonderful that's uh really uh rewarding and wonderful to hear uh yeah the anger is a big part of the book uh the anger comes from judgment and uh anger really hurts us a lot of times uh uh you know we think our anger is justified and actually it really isn't uh, even when we have been assaulted or attacked it's it's actually a very destructive toxic emotion initially as a survival mechanism for fight or flight it had some value but we overuse it we abuse it and we really end up attacking ourselves even when we attack others with our anger and so the key is to let go of judgment to, to accept be tolerant be forgiving and loving and uh and it takes practice it's not easy to actually be consistently forgiving and loving to people and and help people without needing anything in return it's really not easy at all we give lip service to forgiveness and acceptance but it takes a lot of practice a lot of diligence but when you do it you really do win in a lot of ways relationships are better health is better uh self-esteem is better and you're, you're more successful in your life because people want what you have and they want to cooperate with with you and so everything gets better when you choose to forgive yeah you know you you wrote a post this morning about um uh, maybe do you still have that or can you remember what you wrote this morning it was about feeling alone not that you were feeling alone. Uh, I, I, uh geez i basically the idea was um that uh we we are we're under the impression that we are that we're alone that we're bodies uh, that that is separate and alone that we we live and die ultimately alone and uh and that's actually an illusion the the reality is that we are we're, we're not alone we are one uh we are connected there's a oneness that really is pervasive where all minds are joined consciousness is joined we are really one and we can reach and tap into that oneness and feel the connection to all living beings and living things on the planet if we get calm and engage truth and engage love so that was kind of the gist yeah yeah i i love that and um well i didn't take it uh, that far for me i took I, I took my own little piece of it away and i i spent um a real good part of my morning writing a piece on collaboration and uh partnerships today and so um that'll be coming out probably in a couple hours here on besteveryou.com so it was kind of fun i'm like you're right we're not alone we're collaborating and partnering even on the show and all the cool things we do so um yeah thank you for writing that i thought that was i thought that was really reassuring especially um with a lot of the comments that we have going on in our community on facebook um where people are feeling really alone right now uh well, the world is just so divisive and angry, and, you know, the, the weird thing about social media is, that, you know, it's designed to bring people together and bring the world together, but it also has brought out really a dark underbelly uh, of people attacking and being angry and and uh, and, and and separating people. So uh, people oftentimes do feel isolated and separated, and we've got to remember that there's a bigger game going on here, and if we focus on that, that, that on love and and connection and oneness, uh, you know, the world is feels a lot safer and there's more joy. Yeah, we percolate peace, don't we, on this show? We percolate peace. <laughs> so, yeah. 
Yeah, I love yeah, yeah. that with uh, with love and. And that's a good segue for you to kind of mention uh, your book, which has helped me a lot as well uh, with uh, really some basic rules of living. Hopefully, it makes you you know laugh about this you know me in my upstairs walk-in closet trying on yoga pants too. You know, there's a visual <laughs> for everybody. <laughs> that's a good chapter in that book. Yeah, my book um, has got a lot of laughter and a lot of um, stories in it that might make you cry. My I was um, talking to my mom yesterday about my brother. My brother's story is in here. His name is Justin Hamilton, and he's a victim of one of the most heinous crimes in Minnesota history. Um, and so, not not all the details of the crime are in the book, of course. But um, what what he did in the book is um, he contributed a poem, and it's about anger, actually, that we've been talking about here. And um, so I was really proud to include my brother, and I'm glad my brother survived that crime. And he, one of the ways he is healed, uh, my book is about helping people percolate peace and deal with change and whether it's something you want to change or not. But one of the, way my bro- one of the ways that my brother, Justin, has healed is through writing. And um, over, the, over the past few years since this happened to him, he has, uh, and he was born with fetal alcohol syndrome, uh, mind you, and he's my adopted brother. My parents adopted him at birth. So writing, you know, you would, writing and running and driving, you know, he's not a, a real productive, uh, in quotes, person. You know, he's, he's not uh, working or driving or doing the things that a lot of us would take for granted. So for him to even write is, is crazy cool. And for him to write poetry on top of it is even crazy cooler. And for him to write good poetry is, is even more awesome. And we've put his book out um, this past month. And so his book is available on Amazon. And uh, I'll put a link on the show. Nice. But isn't that cool to go from yeah. all these things stacked up against you and prevail? Yeah. Uh, anyway. So, um, yeah, it's it's pretty crazy but that's percolate and the story that's in it and i'm so happy that we have our guest with us um talk about bringing people together i think music don't you is one way that people get so brought together music stories all the things so will clipman is here with us and um get this everybody he began playing his father's drums and his mother's piano at the age of three that's awfully tiny to be <laughs> drumming and playing the piano, don't you think, Walter? That's oh, absolutely. I, you, you know, the more you learn about Will, that you know he had a has had a calling, and he's always had something special inside of him, and he's been nurturing it from a very early age. Yeah. Yeah, and he played his first professional gig at 14, and has since then mastered. Um, over, really over 100 percussion instruments in addition to the traditional drum set. I, I'm so excited to learn more about everything that he does. Will, are you are you with us? <laughs> Your microphone's unmuted, you. and here you are listen, listening to us chat at the top of the show. You, you're you a seven-time Grammy nominee and a three-time Native American Music Award winner. I could go on and on and on and on and on, but first let's just welcome you. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, thank you. Good, good, good. Um, Dr. Walter, um, Will, you connected us with Will to be on the show, and I was just wondering um, how, if you want to share with the audience how you guys met and why you thought he would be such a wonderful guest for the Best Ever You show, because I can see it. But we met in le- late 70s in Tucson. Uh, I was working on, an, on a, a weekly uh, alternative newspaper, and uh, some... Uh, a mutual friend of ours uh, named Lenny Schulman showed up to become the editor, and Lenny brought in people who uh, were his friends and people who he had shared time with. I believe Will and Lenny were at Syracuse University, and uh, so that's how we met through this uh, this newspaper brought together a lot of wonderful talent, or really great artistic and special people. And then when I talk, a couple of months ago when I became the co-host here. I was talking to Lenny, my friend, and I said, you know, we're, I'm doing this thing now. We're trying to bring, like, people on that are, are special and interesting and have, like, a lot that can inspire other people and are talented in their fields. And he said, he just said, what about Will? And I said, well, of course. And so that was, that was the impetus. And, we, you know, now he's here. And uh, it's, it's unbelievable. He's, this guy's a teacher, a poet, a storyteller. Music uh, that's fantastic music and uh, a mask maker, and he tells Will talk about some of this stuff. Talk about the mythopoetic story, wherever you want to start. Yeah. Well, I liked Elizabeth's idea of starting at the beginning, which is when I 
took up the drums and the piano at the age of three, and that's that's an insightful moment because I can remember it as if it were yesterday, climbing up on the throne of my dad's drum set and hitting one of the tom-toms, and that vibration went through my body and rearranged my molecular structure. And I knew at the age of three that I was going to do this forever. I wasn't sure what this was, but I knew I wanted to have that feeling uh, as often as possible for as long as possible. So really the source of it is vibrational and just a very visceral, visceral response to the vibration of that particular drum, which I fortuitously chose to hit. Um, my grandmother was a poet and got me interested in poetry at a very early age. I actually wrote my first, first poem for her at the age of six. It was a little rhyming ditty about monsters with wings and other wonderful things, et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, she went nuts over it, so I got the idea in my head that this was a good thing to do, and I began to explore language in that way. Uh, that led to a long and varied career as a musician and writer. And uh, it was much later that I picked up mask-making through a master mask-maker I know named Zarco Guerrero, and I happened to burst into his workshop at a summer fine arts camp we were both doing together in the White Mountains back in 1985 and volunteered to model for the demonstration that he was about to begin. So I learned the mask-making technique from the inside out, quite literally, and became fascinated with that. Um, all along the way, I'd been an amateur student of world myth and folklore, and uh, the idea occurred to me that I could combine mask-making with what I call mythopoetic storytelling and world music, and that's what led to the myths and masks entity that you experienced on my DVD. So without rambling on too much further, that's kind of a Reader's Digest version of the journey I've been on since the age of three you know i've got i've got four boys and they're they're um the youngest is 13 and the oldest is 19 and everything that you are doing right now reminds me so much and i told you this of someone that they would bring in to the school as a very high level person and put the whole school in the gymnasium and have you perform for a few hours and I was so excited when I saw your DVD and everything. And I sent you an email saying, you've got to come to Maine. You're like, I've been there. <laughs> I've done that. But you have you have performed in so many different places, schools and elementary schools and um, hospitals and art galleries and libraries and spas and resorts and retreat centers and all these different places. I think that is so neat um, to, for you to share your gifts with Everyone, you don't, you know, you're not, you're not like, yeah, I'm not going to a school to do that. I have to be on a, you know, a world stage or something. You know, you, I just think that is so, that's so neat because kids get to see you and um, learn all the things that you do. I, I just can't even imagine who you've inspired over the years with all of that. Well, I hope that's true. I've been a professional um, arts educator for almost 35 years now, and I served on the roster of the Arizona Commission on the Arts for 25 of those years, and I've done over 200 residencies and workshops and presentations and so forth, not only in schools, but also in prisons and hospitals and senior centers and art galleries and libraries and parks and rec programs and, and so on. And to me, it's I love doing it, for one thing. I, I I'm kind of a natural teacher. My my grandfather was a teacher and a superintendent of schools, and my family is uh, highly educated. So I, I come by that aspect of what I do quite naturally. But for me, there's nothing more exciting than that moment when you are aware that you're communicating your passion for what you do to students, be they children, adults, people of all ages, and uh, you can see people's eyes light up and you, you see people having this aha moment when they realize that they can do this too. So my work is all about engaging people in a very hands-on participatory way in my various art forms rather than sort of ped pedagogically explaining it to them. We just jump in and start doing it. And 
and that's when the magic really happens. You know, on your on your DVD myths and masks, you have a segment where you you're with kids and, and people, uh, and you're going through the mask making process, and uh, and then you have a forty minute, I think, a forty minute concert where the mythopoetic, where you are doing different instruments. And, and you put on these different masks, and it is amazing. Uh, it's really incredible, the transformational process of putting on these amazing masks that you've, you've gotten. You know what? It reminded me, when we used to have Halloween parties in Tucson, one time I really painted my face with such a mask that people didn't even know it was me underneath it. And there was like a, an incredible sort of liberating experience with that. And I, I thought maybe you might comment on just the idea of masks as liberating or, or other uses of the mask. Well, that's, that's a great insight. And transformation, I think, is the key word. Uh, that's one of what I consider to be the nine traditional uses of masks in world cultures. And it's certainly true. It's very transformational, and, and it's also very liberating, as you pointed out, because it gives us an alter ego, a different persona, a certain degree of anonymity, uh, which allows us to express things about ourselves and discover things about ourselves that we wouldn't ordinarily be able to do wearing the mask of our ordinary, everyday face. So that's definitely part of the concept and intent of myths and masks. And uh, I find that having people make their own masks and then paint them and embellish them with 3D objects while developing their own mythic persona poem, which kind of tells the life story of the imaginary character that the mask represents, is a, a very real-life transformational experience and people have described it as being not only revelatory but also healing uh, so there's that aspect to the work as well I you know at the end of the day it has to be fun <laughs> um, but I call it serious fun it's it's enjoyable but there is a deeper intent there and I think that's to bring forward what I call the, the inner mythic persona the the highest, most fully expressed self that one can conceive of, and we all have that, I firmly believe. I've never met a person who doesn't have that, but very few of us are empowered with the, the tools and the techniques to, to bring that forward and give it a coherent voice and a physical expression in the form of the mask. So that's really what I'm after when whenever I do myths and masks, either as a performance or an activity with students or uh, an enrichment activity with adults. You know, one of the reasons why I love living right here in Falmouth, Maine, is because the school district has such a, a incredible arts and music program. Um, it's just a really vibrant part of, of our curriculum here. And so each of my kids has gone through the the arts program here, and I'm in back of me on my shelves. I wish I could take a picture of this for you. I have all these masks on the shelf <laughs> because in the art program they have a whole month that they dedicate to making masks and writing poetry that goes with the masks, or you have to write a story if you don't want to write a poem. Um, did you start that in schools, or, or are we just lucky to have people clued in enough clued in enough here to do that, or is that your program in our school? I'm just curious. I have no yeah, idea. That's, well, I, Myths and Masks is actually a registered trademark, which is neither here nor there, but the point is that I think I originated the idea of combining mask making with what I call the mythic persona poem and then inviting people to perform their work as a culminating event. So it is a program that I developed first for my artist-in-residencies in the schools through the Arizona Commission on the Arts, but in, inevitably adults that I was working with, teachers, PTO members, administrators, parents, uh, began to ask, well, do you ever do this with adults? And I thought, hmm, why not? So I started doing it uh, as a weekend uh, you know, self-exploration and enrichment event at spas and resorts and so on. I've also used it in the setting of juvenile detention facilities, which 
has been really interesting work in conjunction with my 16 years of teaching a poetry workshop in the Arizona State Prison System. So it, it just kept rippling out and out and out and embracing more and more possibilities. Uh, but it is a... I, I, li I like to think that I originated the concept. I certainly didn't invent masks or poetry per se, but uh, combining them in this way as uh, an educational and self-enrichment tool, I, I think, is my idea. So I'm, I'm really glad that it's reaching so many people. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, your music, I mean, mass is, is one aspect, and in your show you... you play different instruments and, and things and you've got multiple albums uh you know the, the music is incredible it's kind of uh, it's really peaceful and soothing and uh, it really gets inside yourself it really gets inside me and uh and, and uh, it resonates and i think this ties into the idea of uh in my mind of actually healing that uh that when i feel something resonate with me i feel it's like uh my molecules are vibrating at the right state and i i feel healthier and wholer and saner uh do you have some kind of take on the vibrational quality or the healing quality of music well that's certainly part of the intent in the music that i make and the music that i collaborate on with my various musical buddies but uh yeah you you again you really kind of put your finger on the heartbeat of it which is that it is vibrational and it, it is transformative and it is healing and um, I think that's particularly true of percussion because the vibration of a drum travels out in all directions rather than being a unidirectional sound wave. So it really, it's like tossing a pebble in a pond. The ripples are concentric and ever-expanding. And once you set that vibration in motion, it, it continues forever. It sort of keeps traveling out into the universe at the speed of love, if you will, and you never know what's going to ripple back from that. But I've had people use my music in many different contexts, from birth music to death music to healing music for yoga, trance, dance, meditation, and so on. So evidently, uh, I have struck some harmonious chords that are resonating with many people on that level, aside from the entertainment value of it, which I don't dismiss. Again, I think it needs to be fun. It needs to be entertaining and appealing and uplifting. Um, but once you're once you have your foot in that door, then you're open to the kinds of experiences that you're describing, having had with with my music. What's the connection between the rhythm and then language in everything that you do? Well, that's really at the heart of it for me. Having started playing drums and piano, which of course is a percussion instrument, at the age of three and having started writing poetry at the age of six, I very early on became aware of this intimate interwovenness of musical rhythm and the rhythms of language. And what I've developed is a, a rubric for teaching poetry uh, based on the fact that rhythm is language and language is rhythm. In other words, when we play drums and percussion together, we are communicating thoughts, emotions, life experiences. And by the same token, when we use language, whether it be spoken or written language, we're using the musical quality of it, syllables, are equivalent to musical notes or beats. And if we begin to hear and feel language in that way, it opens up a whole new realm of expression and enjoyment. And this is particularly impactful for, for children because so often writing is a chore. It's something that you're forced to do, you have to do. They always ask me, how long does it have to be? How many pages do I have to have? And I always say, well, it has to be long enough to tell story you know so but but once you get people enjoying the sound of words uh it, it just makes writing a pleasure rather than a chore so that you know that's really my underlying philosophy is that rhythm is language and language is rhythm 
you know, when I when I talk, I'm just babbling. I mean, I just, the words just kind of fly out of my mouth, and you know, hopefully they make sense. And but uh, <laughs> you, your voice is, uh, I, 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 it's, I, I get it. What you're saying about like that that language. There's a music to your voice. There's a pacing. There's an emphasis. I don't know if you do this on purpose or not. I wanted to ask you if you had any kind of language or speech or vocal training because you're, you're, but just the rhythm of your voice is a message that's healing, I think. Uh, did you train or anything in that line? Well, I'm largely self-trained. I did take some uh, oral interpretation courses at Syracuse University where Lenny and I met and uh, with some wonderful poets who I studied with there. But by and large, it's something that I intuitively felt was part of what I was trying to communicate. And I've since then, I've deliberately cultivated that. I have no real formal training, per se, in in the vocal arts, but I'm very aware of the vibrational qualities of the voice, and I've I've done different things over the years to try to bring that aspect of what I'm saying out in the sound of my voice. So it's, I suppose it, it's a natural gift, if you want to call it that, but it's also something I very deliberately cultivated over a long period of time. And I, I hear that a lot with all humility. I do hear from people a lot when I'm speaking on stage during a performance or facilitating a workshop or now doing a radio interview that there's this quality there that is um, soothing, if that's the right word, or uh, somehow embellishes the message that's being delivered. So I'm I'm really glad you're hearing that through all the little wires and digital <laughs> oh, yeah. between. You know, if we if we, it'd be fun to sit in a room together sometime and experience that, but uh, evidently some of it's coming through over the airwaves as well. You bet. Yeah, you can. You have the ability to calm people down. I think is the the way I would put it. You have the ability to almost kind of control the flow of um, almost the interview, even like right here. You 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 you've definitely put a, a rhythm in motion, and it's pretty cool. So we'll follow it, and we'll we'll stay with it because I I love it, and it makes it more paced too, and not so rushed and. It, I always feel like I, there's so much to say in the hour. Can you get everything out in the hour? And it makes it fast and all that stuff. And rambling, too, right, Walter? <laughs> He's eloquent with his speech. Um, very eloquent speaker. Um, so that that's that's the maybe almost the, the transformational and healing part of you. Do you have um, DVDs or something in the works and uh, that – is along those lines, like a, a meditative healing, um, something or other, uh, in addition to uh, everything that you've got going on? Do you have more? Th- I guess I'm trying to ask if you have more things coming out. <laughs> well, I hope so. There's always the next project, and I'm always at work on something. A couple of things that are in the pipeline right now are a storytelling CD, which will be 99.999% spoken word, and that's based on a story cycle called Ancestral Voices of the Grand Canyon that I conceived of uh, a couple of years ago when I was invited to be a floating artist in residence on a 236-mile, two-week rafting trip down the Colorado River through the entire length of the Grand Canyon. Um, and my job if you want to call it that, was to listen to and uh, give voice to the ancestral voices of the canyon, which led to this story cycle. So I'm going to start recording that on April 20th, actually. I've also been invited to submit some tracks for a new recording to a label I work with called White Swan Records that specializes in yoga music and meditation music and trance groove music. And that'll be a departure from most of what I've done, which is more rhythmic and and uh, beat-driven, if you will. So those are two new projects coming up, and uh, I'm also I'm also waiting to hear from a publishing collective in Los Angeles called What Books Press about their 
willingness or lack thereof to publish a new book of poetry that I've written called um, Wilderness in the Marrow. And if they bite on that, then that'll be coming out this year from what books press. And if they don't, I'm going to find another way to get it out because I'm very excited about this new work. I use new in air quotes because I've been writing that book since my first book of poetry came out, and that's been 30 some years. So uh, I guess I work on a longer timeline than some artists. But, uh, I do have some new, I do have some new stuff uh, per- percolating, as we say. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, and of course you're right about the, your attitude about uh, if they say no, you keep going until you find the yes, and uh, which you uh, which you will. Our motto. Um, yeah, uh, can but I ask you know, him a question? Oh yeah, go can ahead. Can I ask him a question? Yeah, just along his lines. When you well, when you listen, when you're really quiet and you listen, what do you hear? Because I have a sneaking suspicion it might be different than what the rest of us hear. What do you hear? Well, that's a really interesting question, Elizabeth. I pride myself on my listening ability, and I, I believe as a musician as a writer, as a teacher, maybe just as a human being, that listening is really, really important and very much overlooked. So I really treasure silence. You know, any music that I make has to be an improvement on silence or it's just noise. And anything I say has to be improvement on silence or it's just gibberish. So I try to speak the silences between the words and play the spaces between the notes. And part of that is being able to really quiet my own voice, which is insistent and always has something to say, but to be able to quiet that enough to hear you or to hear Walter or to hear wind chimes or to hear the wind itself. And the quieter we get, of course, the more information is available to us. Uh, The difficulty is quieting the mind and and the ego and the impulse to express oneself enough to to really be available to all this information that's around us all the time. And I, that's something I've cultivated since childhood, I suppose, just being able to sit quietly and listen. And, And you can turn that on and off when you get good at it. I can really, really listen to the question you're asking and and then give a response that's meaningful. So um, I, that that's a great question and it's very, very important in my work is that, you know, finding the, the spaces and the silences. I, I want to acknowledge that that was a great question too. Uh, that was really good and uh, and a great answer. Um, but yeah, and I, as a psychiatrist or a therapist, uh, listening is is really critical, uh, and I, and t- you know because a lot of times there are other agendas rather than the words that people are expressing uh, their I guess their music or their their personal music or language through body language and expressions and and, and other things uh, other than the words they're saying and uh, and also in in therapy getting quiet so you. Uh, can hear a higher, perhaps a higher self, the voice of a higher self that is wise and and knows what's true. Uh, you agree with that? I do agree with that, and it's very much at the heart of what I do, and particularly in the mythic persona poetry. Uh, I suppose, in a way, that's a form of therapy, and I suppose, in a way, what you do is a form of of poetic expression. You know, going back to people like Jung and Joseph Campbell, um, which is an area that we might have time to get into maybe. But, uh, yeah, that's that's true. And it's important for me, for, for my students, to not only write the poem, but speak it, to sing the rhythm of the words, to give this mythic persona an actual voice. And so we work a lot on oral interpretation techniques and using the body and the voice as instruments to express the creative concept to a live audience, whether it be one other person or an audience of a thousand. So that all stems from 
the, the receptive quietude that one enters into in order to receive the information and then turning that around and really cultivating the expression of it so that what you heard, what you experienced is what you're able to communicate in an unvarnished way to your audience. Hmm. I love this baby picture of you on your website. A picture <laughs> yeah, of him. <laughs> I love this baby picture. It's a, ba- a tiny baby picture of him. I don't know how old you are. You can't, you're not sitting up by yourself. That, yeah, not yeah. even one that picture, and that's not staged. Uh, they, no. I got that drum as my first Christmas present, and um, I was I was born in July, so that was December. So I was what less than a year old, and uh, and I just picked up the sticks and started having at it even before I could walk or talk. So that's that's a real moment. <laughs> Cute. It's like my son with a baseball bat and, and a glove. He's been doing that same thing since he was a pipsqueak. Did, what were your parents like? Wow. Well, both of my parents have passed away, so um, I'm remembering them fondly. But, uh, wow, that they were very different people uh, and ended up being too different, really, to be together uh later in the picture, but in the beginning, uh, they were really wonderful role models for me. My dad was a semi-professional drummer before he gave that up to go to law school and raise a family and have a quote-unquote respectable career, and I, I think he always enjoyed the fact that I didn't give it up, but maybe also at times wished that I would have. Um, but he was he was a really wonderful kind of storyteller and musician and actor and singer and creative person in addition to this other professional life that he had. My mom was a first grade teacher uh, early on and, and gave that up to raise four boys and be uh, a stay-at-home mom. And in that role, she was incredibly patient and nurturing and supportive. Not a terribly creative person herself in any conventional way, but she always enjoyed and was sometimes perplexed and um, had difficulty with my tendencies in that direction because I started, right from the start, everything had to be authentic and real in terms of what I wore and how I acted things out and how I play acted things. And uh, I think that was kind of strange and wonderful for her to be around, <laughs> I hope. Yeah. But I was I was a difficult kid, too, and there were lots of moments where I had to be reined in and disciplined, and, and they were good about, you know, setting boundaries that uh, were recognizable and weren't to be crossed. And I think that's one reason I'm still alive. I'd probably be dead ten times over if if I hadn't been uh, raised right, let's say. Uh, I've, I've always been a, a risk taker sometimes to my own detriment. But, uh, yeah, my mom and dad were, were wonderful to me. Uh, my only regret about them is that they weren't so wonderful to each other at times. And uh, that's uh, that's a different story, but part of who they were and, and our relationship. I I uh, you just mentioned risk risk taking, and uh, I'm thinking about your your music and if uh, if you take risks now in terms of uh, pushing the envelope, uh, if you take risks when you collaborate with others, or how how does that work in your in your music? Well, that's a huge part of my life as a musician because most of the music I record and perform begins as improvisation. And I love the feeling of being out on the limb and sawing it off behind me and hoping (laughs) that somehow it would stay aloft and not come crashing down. And these days, most of the time, it does stay up there and, and blossom into something cool. Every once in a while, a little crash, but those are learning experiences too. Uh I've I've been pretty fearless in my experiences in music. 
I, I decided early on that <clears throat> I wasn't a jazz drummer or a rock drummer or a classical percussionist or a world musician, that it was just all music. And if I let go of the genres, then I would be able to pick up some instrument and do something musical in any context. And that's allowed me to perform and record in all those and many other musical genres without any boundaries, really. So there's kind of a, a fearlessness about letting go of any preconceived notion of what the music is supposed to be and just trusting my my training and my instincts and my lifetime of experience to empower me to make good choices that are going to be musical and complementary. And it also comes back to what we were talking earlier about in the sense of listening. To me, great musicians are great listeners, perhaps even more so than great technicians and great players. Uh, You really have to be able to stop once in a while and let someone else play. Uh, so it becomes a conversation rather than a monologue. And, um, you know, as a, as someone who's had a career mainly as an accompanist, that's been huge for me. And I, I think that's why people like to play with me, because I, I can put aside um, the ego and, and sort of find the heartbeat that supports the music. What are your thoughts on band? like band in the schools and, and things like that. Did you ever well, play in the I'm band in high for, school? Or? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 my own experience was less than stellar, but I that was my fault. <laughs> uh, they, they wanted me to play trumpet and I wanted to play drums, so I deliberately stunk at trumpet, so I got kicked out of elementary school band and that's when I started playing rock and roll, and that led to my first professional gig. So it, it all it's all good in the end. But, you know, I, I'm all for any music and art that we can keep in the schools. And, of course, those programs are always the first to be under attack and to be underfunded and to be cut with the incredibly misbegotten notion that art and music are somehow expendable or not important or a waste of time. And, of course, that's utter nonsense because art includes and embraces and supports and develops and cultivates all the other subjects and all the other skills. Uh, So we really need to reverse this paradigm 180 degrees and uh, and support art and music and band and any form of creative expression that we can bring into the school setting. And that's what I've been doing, really, as an arts educator for lo these many years. I, I consider myself a benevolent subversive in the sense that I create these opportunities for kids to experience this this wonderful power that they have within themselves and also give it enough uh, academic rigor, let's say, that um, it it applies across the curriculum. And I think that's why people continue to bring me in as an artist in residence, because it's it's not just fun and games. It's like I said, it's serious fun. It is fun, but there's an intention to it. And when they grasp kids, I, I'm referring to when they grasp um, that you can learn and have fun at the same time, that you can enjoy what you're doing, but also have it be a meaningful and substantial expression, then you're really educating the whole child. And and that's kind of what we're not doing very much at the moment, at least here in Arizona, certainly, but apparently nationally. Yeah. Yeah, The math scores go crazy up with with, uh, there's there's uh, like proven studies that show that math scores are directly impacted by people who play in an instrument, especially like the piano or or drums or something like that, a percussion instrument. Have you ever heard heard of that before? Yeah, that's self-evident to me, and of course there's a gigantic body of research to support that, but that doesn't convince some people who, you know, are reading, writing, and arithmetic types. Uh, they don't get that the mind is not uh, compartmentalized, nor is the the person. 
and uh, you know, obviously these things are interactive and mutually supportive, but we've kind of broken it down into a day of seven periods of seven different subjects and never the twain shall meet, and that's really destructive to the mind and to the person. So I'm, you know, as I say, I'm kind of a benevolent subversive out there um, doing my thing under the radar and, and trying to reverse the paradigm that currently exists. You know, I agree with you about the... Yeah. Oh, sorry. I was going to say I agree with you completely about the uh, the upside-down nature of uh, of these curriculums. You know, when I was in school, it was all, it was, you know, as you say, facts. A lot of facts, a lot of history, a lot of facts, 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 facts. And not, you know, there's nothing holistic about it. And what you're, that's what you're saying is like, uh, you know, you want to create a human being when you educate them, a, a full holistic human being who also has consciousness and awareness and, and, and can, uh, you know, think for themselves as well. And uh, through art and music, I think those influences, the little I had in, high, in um, like elementary school and high school, made a huge difference in forming who I was as a person. Yeah, I didn't have those opportunities, really. Art in my at elementary school was a little old lady who came around once every two weeks with a cart with some construction paper and glue on it, and we made turkeys at Thanksgiving and angels <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so on. So I, you know, when i not having had those kinds of opportunities, it's really exciting for me to be able to provide them to Students That's in the interesting. Yeah, and I and I thought it was kind of the norm because I was um, I was raised in Iowa in the Pleasant Valley schools uh, in eastern Iowa, and I grew up all the way since you know kindergarten. They had we had regular art and music, and the schools here in Falmouth, Maine, have the same thing. And in addition, the um, foreign language is required um, starting in kindergarten. So hmm. different here in Falmouth, Maine, I guess, huh? They're they're required to pick either French or Spanish starting in kindergarten. Wow. Yeah, we did we did have a language requirement that didn't come into play until middle school in our system, but I yeah. we had a choice of French, Latin or Spanish. And I wanted to do Latin, but my father forbade me to do that because he said it was a dead language. He wanted me to learn a living language, so I chose French and for a while there I actually became pretty fluent and actually traveled in France a bit. Um I've lost a lot of it but, but I but I really think polylingualism is an amazing thing and I have I have uh friends who are parents from different cultures whose kids speak three languages fluently or more and, and to me that just makes you more of a a citizen of the world and more aware of all these intuitive elements in language and art and culture and human interaction that are closed off if you just, you know, you insist on speaking Merkin and the rest of the world should speak Merkin and doggone it when I go to another country, I'm speaking Merkin and they better bring <laughs> me my, my burger and fries, you know. <laughs> Bigger than that. Go ahead. Oh, uh, yeah, I was, uh, I wanted to mention, you know, you do the percussion, you do so many instruments, and on your Myths and Masks, you talked about this didgeroo, what, and the carbon dating, I just wanted to mention that, because this goes back a long ways, right? Yeah, the didgeridoo, the Australian um, horn, if you will, is at least 40,000 years old, it's probably the, the, the first intentionally created musical instrument on the planet and uh, it's it's hot the log that's used to make the horn is hollowed out by uh, termites uh, so it's a naturally occurring thing that's just slightly wow. refined by, by human beings to create this instrument but it's also played with a circular breathing technique which is very trance inducing and meditative so that's a great example of uh, the depth of the origins of, of this vibration that we've been talking about. Yeah, yeah, cool. How many instruments do you play? Last time I counted over 100. I kind of stopped counting at 100. I, I, couldn't, uh, even, I, had, I couldn't even list 100 instruments. I could list 12 maybe. <laughs> yeah, well, that's amazing. What are they? 
Well, I'm counting the triangle as an instrument, mind you. So we're talking about very specific things being designated as instruments. But I, you know, I, I started collecting world music instruments about 30 years ago, and now I I have the luxury of having a, a, a freestanding building on my property, which I call the Boom Boom Room, which is where I keep all my instruments that they just kind of overflowed the house and the living space so they now have their own special building out back and uh you know i that's where i rehearse and and compose and and where various ensembles that i work with get together and play so it's it's a very creative space but it's also kind of wall-to-wall and floor-to-ceiling instruments and i'm sure there's things in there that i haven't seen in a couple of years uh just because and play them all all the time, but uh, at last count, it was something like a hundred different distinct instruments. That's amazing. Uh, it's amazing that you set set up a wonderful living situation in Tucson with in the desert, and you've got your studio there. You've got land and the cactus. It's uh, well, what what made you decide to do that to stay there, or was it just really you knew that was your home? Yeah, I knew this was my home the moment my feet hit the ground, literally. I relocated here in 1977 from where I was living in Pennsylvania and having lived at many other places along the way. And I came here sight unseen, had never been here, but I had been accepted into the Master of Fine Arts program at the University of Arizona. And I was always drawn to the desert southwest, just intuitively, uh, so when I when I landed here, you know, I got out of my little truck. It was overheating. It was August. It was 106 degrees, and the asphalt was melting. And you know, most people would get back in the truck and keep driving, but I I just thought, wow, this is awesome. I love this. And uh, I found a place to live the first night I was here. And at that time, I was running about 50 miles a week, and I just started going out in the middle of the afternoon and running, which people thought was quite insane and probably was. But I and hiking in the desert and exploring the desert, and I just I just fell in love with the Sonoran Desert, and I knew that this was home for me immediately. And you know, I've lived all over town in different circumstances, but for the past 18 years, I've had this really lovely. A property on the far west side, about a mile outside the city limits, which is four acres of natural desert, basically. We have over 100 saguaros on the property and the, the entire, you know, wildlife spectrum uh, living right outside our kitchen window. So it's really inspiring and great, and I'm, I'm grateful for it every day. By the same token, it's 20 minutes from the airport and five minutes uh-huh. from the eight and ten minutes from downtown, which I need because I have to travel a lot. So it's a nice blend of feeling out of town but being close to those urban amenities at the same time. Right. Yeah, I, I love that area out there. Being, you know, I've, I've never been outside the U.S. So um, for me, I was, I was born in Iowa, and um, Minnesota was pretty much as far as I got until the early 90s, and then I was in New York, and travel, you know, I got to be in some of the cities, and I, one of the coolest places I've ever seen still is Sedona, Arizona. I think Sedona mm. is so pretty. Yeah, that's beautiful, beautiful land. Uh, I actually met my wife in Sedona. That's another story, but, you know, for for centuries, probably millennia, that area was not settled by the indigenous people. It was agreed upon that it would be a place where people could go, check their weapons at the door, and just recreate and and commune with nature and and so on. Um, so to me, it's it's unfortunate that there is a city there. Uh, I wish we had mutually agreed to keep it open for everyone to go and enjoy the natural beauty and the incredible energy of the place. Uh, and it's, it's quite frankly, kind of been overrun and to some degree right. destroyed uh, by having been settled. But the beauty of the landscape still shines through, and there, there's really no place on earth like it. Yeah. It's gorgeous. 
gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. What about hey, um, what's uh, Canyon? Well, you you uh, have a. I wanted to ask you about this because on your on your, when you send emails to people, you got a you got a great email uh, newsletter you send out each month. Uh, you quote you've got these quotes from this. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Is it Guillaume Henri? Correct, sir. All right. Woo! Ding 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 ding. See you. What, you speak what is French. That? You didn't even know it. Yeah. Guillaume Henri. So what's the deal with him? Okay. Well, this is a big this is a big reveal here. So I hope your listeners are writing this down. Um, <laughs> I, Guillaume Henri is my French existential philosopher alter ego, and my first name William is Guillaume in French. My middle name Henry is Henri. So I took my first and last name in French as the the name for this <clears throat> this mythic figure, but he empowers me to come forward with these spiritual and philosophical aphorisms that you see in my email signatures in a way that I I would never presume to do as myself. Uh, Speaking of masks and empowerment and liberation and transformation. So it's kind of a character I created out of my own self to give voice to these pithy little sayings, and what I found in including them in my email signatures is that people love them, and they, yeah. they always say, wow, great quote, who's this Guillaume Henri guy, and I would put them <laughs> off and say, I, I'm not sure, I just kind of came across it, so for years I didn't tell anybody who it was, but I think the cat is out of the bag right now, so uh, I'm, I'm actually compiling what I hope will be a daily flip calendar of Guillaume Henri sayings. And it's going to be called 365 Things I Hope Are True, The Daily Wit and Wisdom of Guillaume Henri. <laughs> well, that, they, are, they are wise, and that's a great idea. Uh, and that's, that's hilarious and brilliant, uh, your alter ego there. That's a, that's a great, great, great thing. Yeah. Well, you, what, you understand, um, I wouldn't presume to say these things as Will Clipman. Right. Right, oh, but yeah. it's still, it's still it a part of you. It's still a part of your of your whole selfhood. But yeah, so that's a little mask you wear, and and it works. And then people don't have the other biases or judgments to lay on it. Huh? Right. Right. So it's it's received differently as well, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, because they're not lay, layering on the idea that this is Will Clipman saying this stuff. Now it's the the mystique of it makes them more open to it, I think, and not have pre uh, judgments about it. Right, it's just a cool right. name. It's just a cool, it's just a great yeah. name, you know. I sat here for, like, the whole show going, I think I'm going to give that one to Walter so he can pronounce that name. <laughs> <laughs> like, Walter, read number six. Um, so what about, um, but, let's keep going. I think we only have a couple minutes left anyway, but um, are we forgetting anything to ask you? Well, yeah, I, I, um, I think, he, Will, I think you want to mention some uh, some significance about the relationship with Canyon Records and R. Carlos uh-oh. Nakai? Nakai. Elizabeth said it correctly. Yeah. Most people mispronounce it the way you did, though, so don't worry. Well, that's a long, long story, but, you know, long story short, I've been working with R.C., as we call him, for a quarter of a century now, which led to my relationship with Canyon Records, which led to releasing over 30 albums on that label, and working with a lot of other wonderful artists. But Canyon is the oldest independent record label in the world and specializes in Native American music, uh, hence uh, their affiliation with with Nakai. And that was a real game changer for me, uh, just in terms of being able to tour the world as as a performing artist and have my music reach millions of people as a recording artist. So uh, I always give them props for that because I, I don't think that line of work would have unfolded the way it did without that relationship. And we continue to play together today. In fact, our next the next event on my calendar is a duo concert here in Tucson at a venue called Sea of Glass Center for the Arts. And we'll be performing selections from our recently Grammy-nominated album, Awakening the Fire, as well as never before heard improvisations which we always do some of in every show so uh that that's really a we could fill a whole hour talking about that story but that's the long and short of it well we just get to have you back again 
How's that? A couple I love months that. Let's do that. We'll have you come back again. So, um, all right, well, we're out of time. Um, but thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Before we go, um, I just want to mention um, we've been speaking with Will Clipman, and his website is willclipman.com. His solo album is Pathfinder, and your um, performance and workshop is called Planet of Percussion. And I love your poetry book also, which is called Doglight. And then you have another workshop and performance called Myths, Myths and Masks. Is that correct? Did I get That's everything? Correct. There's a lot of stuff coming up. Um, you know, Dr. Walter, I still stand by my comment that you have the best friends. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, I must admit, Will is an exceptional uh, person, and I'm glad that you know he was able to come and join us today. Yeah, what a treat well, it was and my a blessing to be with you. And, and Walter, I finished. I just finished Einstein's Cosmic Journey last night, so we need to talk about that too. That's a really wonderful. Oh, wonderful. cool! Oh, yeah, we will. I, this this is going to rekindle our connection here. It's it's really cool. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you guys so much, Dr. Walter. Thank you for your time as well, and thank you, Will, for being with us. Um, what a pleasure and a joy to meet you, and and good luck with everything that you do. You sound like you've got a lot of cool things that you're working on. Um, I hope you cool. come back, though, for real, and keep us updated. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you so much. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I hope you all have a great day. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Best Ever You Show. Want more? Visit us at besteveryou.com. Be your best and keep it real. Confident, successful, caring, and beautiful every day with Best Ever You.